Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalkerson, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you <laughs> launch, scale, and exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season two, episode 47 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. Should you or should you not club up with friends to form a group practice? Oh Lord, is this the dreaded duct tape DSO concept coming back home to roost? You know it, I'm gonna break it down maybe a little differently than the way we have in the past. So stick around through another wonderful cup that Mila coffee. This is sure to be a note-taking episode. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. Thanks so much for joining me today. This is the third in a three-part series around the thought of should you or should you not build a group practice. And Today's episode is about building a group practice, and it's a concept that we call clubbing up or the duct tape DSO concept. And let me kind of lay out what this is um, or the the questions that we get all too often, um, and let me break down some of it, and then I'm going to tell you the right way to do this. So this is going to be a, a bit of a, a more tactical type of a um, an episode and a how-to, if you will, because I think there's going to be, uh, as we as we talk about building group practices, there are going to be some that want to build a group on their own, meaning I own one location, I want to go buy a second location. There are going to be some that say, well, I've got a couple of dental school colleagues that are in the same city as me. Why don't I just like bond together with them and form a group practice, you know, and there's some compelling reasons to do that. Uh, you hear this in terms of clubbing up. Uh, you also hear this a lot in terms of uh, people thinking about a go-to-market strategy. The thought being, well, I've got a successful solo practice. I've got nine other colleagues in the same relative geographic area why don't we all just go to market together and we'll get a higher multiple, right? I mean, if I if my business is a million dollars in revenue and it generates $200,000 in EBITDA and I've got 10 friends, you know, that do the, that are basically the same, if we all go to, to market together, that's $10 million in revenue and $2 million in EBITDA. Maybe my practice alone would fetch four to five times EBITDA if I went to market by myself. But if we go to market together and it's $2 million worth of EBITDA, maybe a buyer will pay us seven to eight times, like three turns on it. Why don't we do that and just go to market together and we'll get a higher multiple for it? It doesn't work that way. All right. That's what we call a duct tape DSO. Here's the problem with it. So you're presenting yourself as 
one business for the benefit of a higher multiple. The buyer takes one look at it and says, is this one business or is this 10 businesses? When the buyer goes through and starts vetting the process and says, let me take a look at the data. Hey, Polaris, um, here's my NDA. I want to learn more about this 10 location group that you're that you're uh, representing in the greater Charlotte, North Carolina market. Um, here's my NDA. Let me take a look at the data room. And the first thing they, they discover is the data room has 10 different data folders for 10 different practices with 10 different financial statement structures. Okay, that's a problem. Um, and there are 10 different businesses represented. So are they able to, is the buyer able to do one round of negotiation, one round of due diligence, one round of legal uh, with this business, or do they have to do 10? If they have to do 10, their costs are significantly higher than doing that one time. All right. So there's your first problem. This is 10 transactions, not one transaction. What about continuity of employment contracts and, you know, post-sale work agreements and, um, you know, any other bonus structures, uh, payroll, all the other kind of stuff? Like, is that one or is that 10? For every time you increase the number, it increases the complexity and it increases the cost on behalf of the buyer. What you're essentially asking the buyer to do in that situation is not just buy 10 practices. That's the first problem. The second problem is the cost burden and the risk is all on the buyer to integrate all of it. And that's where the the thought process around the increase in the valuation multiple starts to erode all but instantaneously. It's 10 transactions, each negotiated independently at different multiples, and you're right back where you started from. All right. So it's not a group practice. You're not going to duck, you're not going to put duct tape around it or a lasso around it, go to market for, for some type of a premium. All right. It, do, it just doesn't work that way. The other thing that's incredibly complicated about it is what happens if 10 of you go to market together and two of them bail out at the last minute because they don't like the buyer, or they don't like the terms or something like that. So now you start to have erosion of value amongst the, the group set that originally went forward together. That's where these things start to unravel in, in multiple scenarios. So if this duct tape DSO thing um, which is a, a number of colleagues in a contiguous market with similar context of businesses. If we want to fit them all together, is there any merit in that? Like, could we come together to form our group? Like, none of us wants to take the risk to personally guarantee all the loans, to own the business 100%, and be the one responsible for doing everything. But maybe if three or four of us as industry colleagues came together to form a group and we pledge our own practices to start, now we can start to differentiate roles, responsibilities, accountability, and, and you know, we don't have to shoulder 100% of the burden of the business only on ourselves. We can do it with, with partners, essentially. And there is a massively compelling reason to do this. All right. That being said, it is massively 
complicated. And it's complicated for a variety of reasons. Most notably, you have a lot of moving parts and pieces concurrently up front. I'm going to unpack them for you starting right now. So let's think about it from the initial, we're going to call them the founders of the business. Okay. And, and it's a handful of, uh, owners of, of disparate practices that are coming together, um, because they want to form a group. All right. So each of you own your, there are three or four of you, each of you own your practices outright. Maybe some of you are carrying debt. Maybe some of you aren't. Uh, they're all different levels of complexity. There's different levels of revenue. There's different levels of EBITDA, all that kind of stuff. So we're going to take all of these practices and we're going to merge them together into one contiguous entity. All right. So the first thing is the, the first phase of doing this at a founder's level is sort of um, the, the formation and integration of the founder's business, businesses, excuse me. Um, that's the, the formation and integration phase. And the formation and integration phase starts with valuing those businesses independently of one another, all right? So like I said, they're different sizes, they're different revenue volumes, different EBITDA, different debt level. You know, they're, they're different life cycles. Some could be brand new, you know, there's it's all debt and very little revenue because they're a de novo. Some could be fully baked. You know, they've been around for 20 years and they're successful and they have no debt. So everybody is contributing something different and there's different inherent value in each of them. So we value the practices or the businesses independently of one another. And we do it through a common EBITDA multiple across the board and then we, which is objective, and then we come back and take a look at the subjective characteristics of it. And subjectively, you might say that, well, that's a, a de novo that is two months in operations, but it's a de novo that has 12 ops fully equipped. All we got to do is staff it and pour marketing in it. And that's going to be, you know, a, a tremendous business going forward versus one that's been around for 20 years, has no debt, is, is fully primed, right? So, there's some inherent value in that de novo that isn't represented in an academic context. So there's the objective valuation piece that says that a common EBITDA multiple, the business's value net of debt as follows. And then there's the subjective piece that says, hey, this one's completely upside down, but we recognize the inherent value as being something. What is that something? So this is part, uh, part art, part science in the beginning. This is also the part of the formation of the business where it's really imperative that the founders don't try to get risk, uh, don't try to get rich at the formation. The reason to, to come together is to build a business collectively that we cannot build individually or that we don't want to take the risk independently to build individually. We want to build a business together because we feel like it can be bigger. It's more defensible. It's more valuable. We have greater survive survivability over the next 10 to 20 years if we do this collectively versus if we go it alone. So when you're doing valuations at the onset here, at the formation level, the idea is not to, to justify maximum value. It's enough to justify 
what is fair, I hate that word, but what is fair across the board to get us all into the rowboat and maintain the commitment that going forward, we're going to build what we can't build individually. All right. So that's the first piece is the herding of the cats, the justification of the valuation and getting in the rowboat together. Now, concurrent to that is going to be some level of legal and operational formation. There's going to be a new entity formed through the combination of these three to four to five or however many practices, right? ABCDSO is the new legal entity that sits above all those practice levels. So there's the the legal formation around the operating agreement. As founders, we're coming together. There's some level of uh, you know business negotiation around the context of the operating agreement. You know what are uh, what are we trying to achieve amongst the partnership? This is going to be the governing document for the business. So there's there's some level of of drafting of the operating agreement, understanding thoroughly what it means in terms of all of us as founders and owners and what we're trying to build and making sure that the operating agreement represents that. And and with that comes all of the other legal agreements that are the legal DSO structure, the management services agreement structure, the employment contracts, any award agreements for earned equity provisions, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So there are a bunch of uh, uh, the the legal formation piece of this that is happening concurrent to the valuation and, 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 you know, uh, uh, financial merger piece of it is incredibly important. And along with that comes an accounting change. Uh, usually there's a cash to accrual conversion on this. Almost always there is. Uh, and you want an enterprise level accounting firm to be the firm that manages the books uh, and does all the financial reporting for the entity. And they have to be comfortable with things like cost center accounting and and all that kind of, you know, cap table management, all that kind of fun stuff with it. All right. So we're forming a new legal entity with uh, with legal documents to support it while we're undertaking an accounting change that reflects the legal structure of the partnership. And there's the merger of everything from a financial context. So I would I would say there's the, the merger piece, which is the first part of the three-part phase. There's the legal and accounting, which is the second part uh, of the three-part phase. The third part of the three-part phase is the debt recapitalization uh, and reconstitution of the business uh, with a, a guidance line uh, tied to it. It is really, you have if you're merging businesses and all of them have some level of debt on them right now, when you form the new entity, the new entity has to be uh, the guarantor for the merged uh, business, and, and you're gonna you're gonna combine essentially all the the loans into one that the the business is going to guarantee with personal guarantors amongst all the formation and and, uh, founding partnership group. All right. At the same time, the banking process can facilitate a buy up and sell down if you want to do something called equalizing the cap table. So equalizing the cap table essentially means that when we come together 
uh, as as multiple founders in this business and all and we're contributing different businesses to the mix that have different levels of valuation, different levels of debt and all that, it stands to reason that once we merge everything together, we're not going to be equal partners in the cap table without some level of cash trading hands. Some people have more valuable businesses. Some people have less. Some people want to be equal partners. So there's a buy up component. You don't want shareholder loans. You want the loans to be with the issuing bank. All right. So the banking recap is the third concurrent piece to this that happens all at the same time. And, and you want all of these processes finalizing at the same point in time. And the processes are the merging of the multiple practices into an agreed upon cap table with valuation. That's first piece. The second piece is the financial reporting and legal structures uh, to constitute the new business. That's the second piece. And the third piece is the debt recapitalization with potential shareholder loans, a buy up and sell down and a guidance line, which is a growth facility to grow the business upon formation. So those three aspects are all going to happen concurrently. It's incredibly complicated. Uh, there's a lot to it. It's a lot of heavy lifting. Um, thankfully, we only have to do this hopefully one time um, because it can be costly to do it. But to form the business from multiple entities and multiple owners into one, now we have one relatively instant, instantaneous group practice that has the ability to grow and create a defensible position and certainly more valuable, um, uh, greater valuation uh, moving forward. All right, so that's what I would call the formation and integration phase uh, that, that literally gets the boat off the dock. The second phase beyond those initial founders um, is the execution of the formal or operational DSO, meaning the management company and the services that it offers. That's payroll services, legal and accounting, it's uh, procurement services, it's marketing services, it's call center, it's you know brand, all, all of that stuff that we talk about that is the promise of the DSO to reduce costs at a practice level uh, and create efficiencies at a corporate level. Now we're building out that operational DSO and we're executing on the, the promise of what that thing is intended to deliver. So the second phase of the business beyond the, the, the formation and integration phase is the execution of operations at a DSO level. And that leads us to expanding the business from a footprint standpoint. So logically, if you and a handful of colleagues come together to form a group practice, y'all are thinking about it from you know, a foundational standpoint, the, the, the founders of the business, building a business that's bigger than themselves uh, and creating a defensible position to weather the storms of the future. But you're doing it because you probably know a handful of other colleagues who would love to participate with you in this, but they're not ready to merge. Their, they want to take the risks of being a founder and merging the business in in the beginning. So they're kind of the second wave if you will, of acquisitions or tuck-ins or expansion, okay? So this second phase has two components to it. 
it's the the execution of the management company and all the services, the DSO services, while we are finding the second wave of of practices to be merged in, acquired, affiliated with, uh, tucked in, whatever it may be, to expand the footprint beyond the the original founders. All right, so that's kind of the the growth and expansion phase as we're building out the successful DSO that could take a year or a couple of years, depending on how, how far and how long you want to go. Uh, and then the third phase that is not required by any stretch, but a lot of people who come to us and want to do this, uh, have this third phase in mind, that is the marketed sales process, you know, with a transaction and exit strategy, um, you know, usually looking for a pure play private equity group to make the investment more than a strategic. Um, but certainly this is something that, you know, if you build a successful group practice, if you can put it together as founders and you can grow it through an, uh, subsequent waves of acquisitions and tuck-ins, this is going to be a, a pretty valuable entity. Uh, and it's going to probably value very highly. And if it's truly efficient from a delivery of services standpoint, you're going to attract a lot of potential buyers and those buyers are going to value the business highly. There are going to be a lot of zeros tied to it. And it's, it's going to be probably pretty compelling to, to consider an exit. And if you do that, the marketed sales process to, to position the business ready for sale uh, and to execute on that could be, you know, anywhere from about nine to 18 months. So most people who want to, um, pursue a duct tape DSO route are, are, they tend to be later stages of their career. Uh, and they're trying to maximize the value of the practice they built upon exit and, and kind of leave it to other people to integrate it and figure out really how to make it sing. And that's, you know, you're not going to get that unless you, you really do the work to really put this thing together and position it as one contiguous business. Um, and, and this is a multi-year process to, to what I just described. That you know, formation and integration phase, uh, that's the, the first phase of the business, it's probably one that's gonna take you know, anywhere from about nine to 18 months. The, the next phase of expanding the footprint, that second wave is probably a minimum of 12 months, probably more like 36 months. And then the go-to-market piece to exit the business is probably another nine to 18 months. So this is kind of a, it, it, the, you know, it, on the short end, it's probably a five-year process to get to exit. Um, you know, on the longer end, you don't have to exit. It may be something where you and a couple of colleagues truly want to build an operational group that's not dependent upon any of you individually. You want strength in numbers. You want a a defensible position, but your intent is to operate it for cash flow purposes indefinitely. So you're not obligated to sell the business by any stretch. But if you do want to, you're going to get more value and maximum value if you literally take the time, put in the sweat, pay the pay the money to get the thing done the right way at the onset and show proof of, of concept and operations. If you pay to get all that done up front and you don't leave it to the buyer to integrate it, then they're going to pay you more of a premium upon exit. All right. So this, 
this whole kind of, you know, duct tape DSO thing that we we hear about um, to try to achieve strength in numbers is, uh, frankly, it's really fool's goal because the the people who are talking about it don't want to commit the dollars. They don't. They want to commit the time, um, take the undertake the effort to really form the group, have the challenging conversations among founders, then truly integrate it, operate it, build it up, and then exit it for maximum value. I mean, when you go through the exit process, there's going to be a sell side quality of earnings. It's a lengthy due diligence phase. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of moving parts and pieces. The transaction values can be pretty gargantuan, uh, honestly. Um, so you can create a really sizable exit that is, you know, high eight figures to low nine figures even uh, to to do it. But it requires, you know, you literally putting it all together and doing it the right way, not leaving it to somebody else. That's why I thought that it was really important to, I don't know, slice and dice this type of a concept, because I think there are a lot of people uh, out there in local markets who who maybe are mid-career. Um, you have colleagues you like, colleagues you trust, colleagues you admire. They built businesses much like you have. And coming together to form a group um, you know, can be a compelling vision. But it, you know, you need to work with an advisor to do it because if the intent is to to come together uh, for exit purposes and you do it the wrong way up front, you're never going to reap the maximum value that you intend around the the water cooler talk around the 19th hole in the golf course. That's the compelling vision to do this, and that's why I think it's so important when we talk about the next 10 to 15 to 25 years. If you're going to be in the profession that long, you absolutely have to consider building a group practice. And if you don't want to do it alone, if you want to do it with colleagues and partners, then there's a way to do this kind of clubbing up thing. And there's absolutely a way not to do it. Um, and, And thinking that it's easy, again, is fool's goal. It can be really, really challenging. But if done the right way, it can be an awesome, awesome outcome. So hopefully I've given you some things to think about today uh, as this will be the third part in that three-part series. Uh, I know it will generate a lot of questions uh, from the audience. You can always reach me at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.